Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Welcome to NSI Live. I'm Lester Munson, and I'll be your host for today. In this episode, we'll be discussing the freedom of the press in Russia with Jamie Fly, CEO and President of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Jamie, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Les. Uh, so folks, we're, um, uh, I don't want to say this is an incestuous call or discussion, but Jamie and I, uh, I would say, are friends and colleagues from way back. We worked together in the Senate uh, in, in the previous decade. Uh, Jamie worked for Senator Rubio. I worked for Senator Corker. They're both on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee together. Uh, I like to think we did a lot of uh, good work together. So I'm a little biased. I'm pro Jamie Fly. Uh, so know that going in. Uh, Jamie is uh, in the middle of a number of issues that are confronting the U.S. right now. He is, as the head of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, uh, he works in Central and Eastern Europe on freedom of the press issues. Uh, and he is kind of the point of the spear uh, for freedom against the authoritarian nature of uh, the Vladimir Putin regime in Moscow. Uh, he's seen it up close and personal uh, in a way that uh, very few of us have, so that I've, I feel this is going to be a very interesting discussion. Jamie, I want to start um, kind of big picture. Uh, talk about, if you would please, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, what that is, what its legacy is, what the current mission is, and how it fits into the U.S. Agency for Global Media and the things that are funded by the U.S. government in this area, if you would, please. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, or to simplify it, uh, RFERL, as, as we call it, uh, is made up of what used to be two radio stations during the Cold War uh, that broadcast to the captive nations uh, in the East behind the Iron Curtain. Um, one of them, Radio Liberty, broadcast to the Soviet Union. Radio Free Europe broadcast to the Warsaw Pact countries. And uh, in its modern incarnation, its mission is very similar to that Cold War mission. It was established to essentially provide objective news and information to provide the truth to people who did not otherwise have access to it. And so RFERL today operates in 23 countries where freedom of the press uh, either does not exist at all, where there are no independent sources of news and information, or where the press is under significant threat. Uh, and uh, as a public broadcaster essentially funded by the U.S. Congress, RFERL, through its local language services, broadcasting in the local languages, can play that role as an independent source uh, of news and information for people. Uh, we operate in, in 27 languages uh, and in a range of markets from stretching all the way from, I like to say, from Belarus to Afghanistan and everywhere, everywhere in between across Eurasia. Uh, and despite the name, we also do have a number of services that uh, are in the Middle East, like an Iran service uh, and in uh, Central Asia and the Central Asian states, as well as in Afghanistan and reaching parts of uh, Pakistan. Like I said, we're funded by the U.S. Congress through an annual appropriation. Um, that has been the case since the 1970s. Uh, we were previously funded in the beginning of the Cold War by the CIA, it was later revealed. 
but when Congress uh, debated this in the 70s, they wanted to make clear that there would be uh, no government interference in the day-to-day operations of uh, the reporters at RFERL. And so they set up a structure where the U.S. Agency for Global Media, the current incarnation, is in part supposed to protect RFERL and the other broadcast networks that are funded by the Congress from political interference, uh, from interference from the State Department or officials who might be tempted to try to get the radios to go easy on a particular government that the U.S. has close relations with despite their human rights abuses. Uh, And the system generally... Uh, works. And uh, we've been able to protect our independence through multiple administrations and allow our journalists to go about their jobs on a daily basis and to fearlessly report on whatever they decide uh, their audience is interested in. And that's always been our brand. And that's why audiences, even now in this digital age, continue to be attracted to our content in each of those countries. And uh, Jamie, you uh, because of that very uh, essential nature of RFERL, you've run into trouble in Moscow with the the Putin government, with Vladimir Putin, and some decisions he's made about uh, the legal stature of RFERL in Russia. Can you talk about that dilemma and what the current status is? Yeah. So the the company in the last thirty years has overgone. Some interesting uh, changes because in the Cold War period, RFERL, uh, both radios, operated physically removed from their audiences. They were headquartered in Munich, Germany, obviously broadcasting mostly radio through the airwaves. Um, and the, the journalists were citizens, exiles of the countries they were broadcasting to, but many had fled. Many had maybe had some family still there, but they weren't able to travel back and forth for the most part. Well, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, RFRL's model of journalism fundamentally changed. Uh, We entered an expansion mode where we set up bureaus in as many countries as possible that we had broadcast to for decades, but never been able to operate freely in. And the Moscow Bureau is an example of that. It was established 30 years ago this year, uh, in 1991. We were invited in at the time by President Boris Yeltsin, and that was the story in many of the countries that we moved into. We were actually welcomed by the new political leadership that had taken over after the communist uh, era. Um, And Yeltsin famously at the time said, I no longer mistrust you, basically complimented our journalism and said, you're welcome here. And we already had a significant following uh, in uh, the, the Soviet Union and then in Russia, even before we set up the physical bureau. But this presence on the ground, putting more of our journalists side by side with the audiences they serve really helped our journalism in Russia as it did in other countries. That all began to change uh, not too long, unfortunately, later within the, the towards the end of the, the first decade when Vladimir Putin assumed power. And over time, we saw a steady decrease in our ability to access the Russian audience. We saw restrictions imposed on us. Uh, loss of radio licenses, blocking us from providing our TV content on satellite or cable packages. Uh, And then in more recent years, in the last four or five years, uh, the designation of us as so-called foreign agents, uh, foreign agent media, because we receive funding uh, from a foreign government, 
and even those restrictions then slowly tightening to what we've seen now in the last six months, uh, invasive labeling requirements regarding our content, essentially trying to drive down our audience numbers by limiting our access to uh, Russians, especially online and on social media. And now even an expansion of this campaign beyond us to other independent media outlets in Russia like Medusa and attacks on civil society. Um, so I think now it's not just about targeting RFERL. It's part of a broader pressure campaign that the Kremlin is organizing to stifle dissent and certain views in the run-up to the Duma elections later this year, and possibly because of concerns about growing public unease with the length of Putin's tenure. Um, but we're now facing a situation because we've refused to go along with these latest requirements where we're being fined to the tune of millions of dollars. Uh, and we've had to take some preventative steps to move some of our staff out of Moscow. Uh, we've had our bank accounts frozen in Russia. And we're committed to continuing our work uh, on behalf of the Russian people. But it's going to be increasingly difficult for us to do that from inside Russia, which is really sad, again, given our history and given the fact that uh, the 30 years ago, in a much different era in U.S.-Russian relations, we were welcomed in with open arms. And, and what are the prospects for you and RFERL succeeding in this legal battle with the, the Putin regime? It's uh, uphill to say the least. I mean, we've appealed each time that we are putting out a piece of content which does not meet these invasive labeling requirements. And they're not just a one sentence disclaimer saying that these guys are a foreign agent. Uh, they've actually now mandated almost like a paragraph warning that needs to go on every web article, every social media post. And we, you can actually see, if you look at the Twitter feed of Medusa, which is one now, unfortunately, one of our fellow foreign agent designated media, the entire Twitter, uh, the entire tweet, the Twitter post is the warning. There's actually no room for any message in the tweet itself uh, on Online videos, they want you to put a 15-second trailer that you cannot fast forward through. A lot of our viewers and audience have been drawn to us because of our social media video coverage of events like Navalny's return to Russia, uh, protest coverage, which they can't get from state-sponsored media. And no one's going to sit through a 15-second trailer uh, just to watch a 90-second video. It just doesn't happen on social media. The algorithm will drive... Uh, down the content and not even promote it uh, because of uh, that trailer. Um, so we're refusing, but every time then we post a piece of content, it technically is a violation of that law. And so we have accumulated hundreds of cases where they've gone after us for violations. We now have roughly $2.4 million in fines assessed, and we have uh, appealed every single fine, but obviously the Russian courts have ruled against us. Uh, and that's how we've reached this point where we now have our bank accounts frozen and uh, uh, bailiffs visiting our office on several occasions, uh, getting ready to apparently seize uh, the office. Despite our problems with the Russian judicial system, we are appealing to the European Court of Human Rights, and they have agreed to hear that appeal, but that is a protracted process. And so we don't anticipate it moving fast enough uh, to solve our problem with the Bureau, but we're going to continue to pursue all legal means possible, as well as the political engagement we've been doing to raise awareness about our challenges. 
and if uh, and if the legal battle doesn't go well, and RFERL ends up having to to do all of its work from outside of Russia, do you do you have a plan to continue to provide uh, truthful content to Russians in that eventuality? Yeah, so we've taken some initial measures to move some of our production staff to other offices that we have outside of Russia. That was mostly to ensure continuity of our TV programming, uh, which was produced out of our Moscow bureau. Um, But we still have an extensive network of freelance correspondents that are very brave, who are very loyal uh, to us. And they they value the work that they do for us and for their Russian audience. And they uh, have indicated that they're committed to continuing to work with us. Those freelance correspondents are not just in Moscow. They're actually across the entire country. We believe it's actually the largest network of independent journalists in Russia that's still active. And so we're going to try to work with that network of journalists for as long as possible. The challenge is that the Russian state is not just targeting media entities like our Russian outlet, uh, they are also now targeting individual journalists. And they've uh, started to apply their foreign agent law to individual journalists. And there are significant penalties if the state decides that you're a so-called foreign agent journalist. Uh, We've had several of our freelancers designated in that way. uh, And they're now involved in protracted legal battles. But our hope is to work with journalists on the ground Uh, as long as possible. And then even if we run into problems on that front, we're also looking at other ways to do journalism uh, from outside the country, relying on the engagement of our audience to ensure that we can continue to provide objective news and information, no matter what the Kremlin tries to do to us. So Jamie, let me, let me ask you a, like a kind of a sensitive question. The, I'm sure that the Russian government is going to cite in, as in through this process or has cited the fact that the U.S. government has told uh, Russian propaganda outlets and Chinese propaganda outlets that inside the United States, they must register as foreign agents under our Foreign Agent Registration Act. Uh, and is, our, is, the, uh, Putin administ- is the Putin regime trying to draw a parallel between what the, what the Trump administration did with Russian and Chinese propaganda with what they're doing to RFERL in Moscow. Yeah, they have uh, framed their use of the foreign agent law as a supposedly reciprocal action uh, similar to the U.S. Foreign Agent Registration Act and its imposition of requirements on RT, Russia Today, and, and Sputnik in the U.S., Um, The reality is that although RT and Sputnik have had to register because they are funded by a foreign entity, by the Russian government, and they've had to declare information about their executives, about their finances, what the Russian state is now requiring of foreign funded media in operating inside Russia goes well beyond anything that the Department of Justice requires of RT and Sputnik uh, in the U.S. And for at a certain point. As we were operating inside Russia, we went along with the Russian requirements in part because we understood that RT and Sputnik had to do certain types of registration activities in the U.S., even though we always knew that we value our independence, we're protected in U.S. statute, uh, that editorial independence is protected in U.S. statute, whereas RT and Sputnik, there are no guarantees of editorial independence whatsoever. And actually all the evidence 
uh, indicates to the contrary, that they are government directed, not just government funded. Um, but we went along with the general registration system. We registered our local entity as required. We paid the taxes, we paid the administrative fees. Um, but that all changed now with this invasive labeling, which uh, is not required of RT and Sputnik in the US. Uh, and uh, the indication is that the Russians are just using the US FARA argument uh, as something that they can hide behind for their targeting of independent media now in Russia. So if I were if I were a really and I am not, but if I were a really cynical realist in my approach to foreign policy and international relations, I would say, well, the Russians have their news and propaganda efforts. The U.S. has its news and propaganda efforts. They're essentially equal. We're trying to make an argument to the other side, and all's fair in love and war. And if if you've got to deal with some tough situations in Moscow that's okay because we're trying to make it tough for Russians and Chinese agents in Washington. But that's, you know, that's not really the case, is it? There is, there is, a, there is a substantial metaphysical difference between what RFERL is doing and the basis of the reporting that you are working on and what, radio, and what Russia Today and CGTN and these state-controlled entities are doing. And can you, can you kind of talk about the the important values that are involved in the work that RFERL is doing. Yeah, I mean, this is the, I think it often gets missed in the Washington debate right now about the information warfare that is happening amongst all of the powerful nations in the world, uh, especially as people, you know, lose trust in traditional media outlets. They move online to get news and information. We've seen information offensives uh, by Russia and meddling in democracies. We've seen China ramp up its uh, outreach in this area. I think yesterday or two days ago, I read that Xi Jinping just gave a speech where he was lecturing uh, Chinese officials about how they need to improve their public diplomacy and their uh, outreach through the media. So this is uh, an area where everyone is looking at how do countries tell their message to the rest of the world and there's a lot of fascination about that topic in Washington and a lot of debate about it. Unfortunately, I, I fear that sometimes, even in the U.S. conversation, we've learned the wrong lessons from history. There's this perception that during the Cold War, the U.S. won the Cold War because we did a better job of telling our story to the world, of presenting our uh, vision of uh, democracy to the world in a very direct, almost propagandistic manner. Um, and there's a place for that sort of work in government. There, I strongly believe that governments should tell their stories and convey, not just through traditional diplomacy, but through public diplomacy, uh, their priorities. And there are ways that the U.S. government can do a better job at that. The State Department can do a better job at that. But that has not traditionally been the role of the non-governmental broadcasters like RFERL. Um, RFERL was always established, uh, despite even its original CIA funding, as a place to promote the truth, to promote certain core values that, yes, support democracy, uh, but the way that you engage with the audience and you strengthen either fledgling democracies or you keep that uh, ember of hope alive in a society that is closed, that has a repressive regime, is by 
spreading independent news and information, telling people the truth. And that has always been uh, the mission, even when the truth doesn't necessarily line up with what official U.S. policy might want to accept or might want to promote. But that has been why audiences have come to us over the decades and market after market, because that was our brand. And that was our promise from the very first broadcast that we would tell people the truth. uh, And we would share information with them that was unbiased and not filtered. And so we at RFRL still adhere to that uh, mission. I still believe that that's an incredibly powerful mission, despite the fact that we're now in a digital age where people get news and information differently. Uh, we've seen that audiences still, and actually even more so now that they have in uh, many countries, a diversity of options. They, they really don't know who to trust. Uh, they're still hungry for brands that uh, respect the truth, that aren't going to spread misinformation. Uh, and so we believe that that is very important. Sometimes, though, policymakers in Washington, uh, when they get frustrated about, well, why can't we be more powerful in this space? Why can't we respond more effectively to Russia, China and others? I think they want to focus less on that core mission of providing objective news and information, of helping keep open the free information space, and they want to twist it more and look at how do we get our story out more effectively. And again, that's a part of it uh, in terms of broad U.S. policy, but it's not why you would fund a news organization like RFERL. Uh, We can talk separately if you want about Voice of America, which has had always a little bit more of a hybrid uh, purpose throughout its history. Um, But the private grantees that are funded through USAGM have primarily been tasked with doing surrogate journalism of going into these societies and operating as independent media actors uh, because there aren't local indigenous outlets that can compete in that way. Magnificently said. Yeah. Magnificently said, Jamie. Magnificently said. And I wanted and I want to take what uh, our, our viewers and listeners might think is a big leap to another story, but I think it's really directly related to what you're just talking about. And that's, and that's you and your position at RFERL. You were originally appointed to be president and CEO by President Trump, uh, I believe in 2019. In 2020, you were asked to leave. And then in 2021, President Biden put you back in, as, in that position as president and CEO of RFERL. It was, it's, in my view, one of the amazing stories of the last four years and our foreign policy efforts. And it was essentially your personal journey. Can you talk about, for the benefit of our audience, and uh, maybe you want to do it in broad strokes and not every minute detail, but basically that journey for you from RFERL to out and then to back in and kind of how it relates to this topic of telling the truth and being an independent voice in really one of the toughest neighborhoods in the world there in, in Eastern Europe. Yeah. And just to clarify the, um, although I was appointed during the Trump administration, uh, the, the head of RFERL is not, not really a political position. Uh, we're governed by, since we're a private 501c3 entity uh, incorporated in Delaware, we have a private corporate board uh, that traditionally has been a bipartisan board. Uh, the board originally uh, was a mirror board with a federal board uh, that was usually that was previously called the Broadcasting Board of Governors, and those governors were 
confirmed by the Senate, uh, members of both parties. But that was the board that appointed me. The Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, was actually one of those board members and traditionally was on the boards of these entities. Uh, but I was not uh, formally a political appointee. And either then or now, um, I was reappointed by the reconstituted board of RFERL. So what happened? Um, there's been a lot of debate about the governance structure of all these broadcasters uh, for many years, as you probably remember from your time on the Hill. Less um, part of it relates to this just kind of, I think, general uncertainty about what's the most effective structure. Couldn't we uh, have greater impact if we had maybe a consolidation of all of the networks into one mega network? Like, let's look at the BBC as a model. Um, some think it should be more private. Some think it should be more federal. Uh, more of the network should be like Voice of America, which also has a, a partial role of telling America's story, not just doing independent journalism out in the field. And so this debate has ebbed and flowed in the Congress for, for decades. Um, and one iteration of that in recent years was the creation of a Senate-confirmed CEO of the U.S. Agency for Global Media. And so in late uh, in the middle of 2020, we got our first Senate uh, confirmed CEO of the agency, uh, a Trump appointee named Michael Pack, uh, who was confirmed after a lot of debate in the Senate, a lot of division uh, amongst the senators about his uh, experience and whether he was the right person for the job. And his first action after becoming uh, CEO uh, about a year ago was uh, to actually fire all of the network heads immediately, overnight, uh, which uh, was a power that he had been granted in the legislation that created his position. Um, that has now been changed because of the uh, realization of both Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill that uh, putting that much power in one individual's hands could compromise the independence of the entities. But he tried to exercise his power in an extreme manner and after he removed all the network heads, he set about trying to influence the uh, coverage of at least one of the networks, Voice of America, the federal network. Uh, and in his final weeks in office, he floated the idea of making more significant changes to RFERL, Radio Free Asia, and Middle East Broadcasting Networks, which are the private networks. And so that short tenure, six, roughly uh, six or seven months that he served in office, I think has now led to uh, a kind of different trend in congressional oversight of the broadcasters, where I think they now appreciate why there needs to be more independence of the networks and why centralization and more uh, authority for a federal official is not the way to go because of the ultimate impact it can have on uh, the journalism. And it really impacts directly that, that core mission of RFERL, which is to be the independent truth teller. And that when uh, this new bureaucratic structure was manifest, and perhaps it was personality-based or perhaps not, uh, it really directly impacted the, the ability of RFERL to do that core mission, right? It was, it was almost a direct shot at the, the intrinsic value of the work that RFERL does. And, and perhaps, uh, and you know, I'm a glasses half full kind of person, perhaps this is strengthened this little brief experiment in an alternative approach or near alternative approach kind of strengthens the understanding 
for our key policymakers in Washington about why the independence is so important for RFERL. I think it has. It, it came at a difficult time for the company. Um, I mean, because of the countries we operate in, we're always under pressure. Uh, these are not safe places for the most part for journalists to operate in. But uh, these developments in the oversight structure in Washington unfortunately occurred around the same time that you had fraudulent election in Belarus and massive street protests, which continue to this day, which we were covering there on the ground. We had journalists detained. We had, we had one, Ihar Losek, who's now been detained almost for a year, uh, in part for, because of his work for RFERL. Um, in Russia, it was during this period where we saw the Kremlin decide to take advantage of um, that moment to push this invasive labeling which now has put us on the brink of having our bureau shut down in uh, Moscow. Uh, and you look at other markets like FTE and Voice of America together have a significant impact and reach uh, for an Afghan audience that uh, is desperate for news and information and may become even more so depending on what happens once the U.S. Uh, withdraws. Uh, we lost one of our journalists, uh, Mohammed uh, Dai last November uh, in a targeted assassination in Helmand. So these are the sorts of things that we're dealing with in the company every day. Meanwhile, the uh, oversight agency is going through this turmoil. Uh, and so it's a distraction to say the least. The good thing though, is that uh, even though I, I wasn't there, the team that was fought for the continued in, in, to protect the independence of the organization, uh, our editorial board, uh, which is very strong, put out statements about our first principles, uh, rejecting some of the efforts of the oversight entity to try to meddle, in, especially in the late weeks uh, in the work of RFERL. And so I think it reminded uh, all of our journalists of the importance of our in and what our ultimate uh, standards are as we go about our journalism on a daily basis. And so it was a real clarifying moment, although it was an incredibly concerning moment uh, for the organization. So Jamie, I wanna ask you uh, to kind of take off your uh, president and CEO hat of RFERL and put on your hat of uh, you know foreign policy opinion leader and thinker. Uh, President Biden is meeting with President Putin in a few days in the middle of June, their first summit. Uh, very important conversation. Uh, what is your, so as the lead into that, what's your assessment of kind of this existential battle between uh, the, the Russian authoritarian approach and the American, perhaps somewhat flawed, but uh, uh, approach based on truth and approach based on independence and, uh, you know, local voices? How is that broadly speaking, playing out these days in your view? We've got a new president in Washington, got a guy who's been in power for a couple of decades in Moscow. This thing's been going on for a long time. It's, it's developed acutely. We've seen uh, a couple of uh, major hacks of American private enterprise with the gas pipeline and then the, the, the meat producer just in the last few days. Uh, things seem to be heating up a little bit. What's your What's your view as an observer, an acutely uh, talented and experienced observer there in Europe of how this is going? Yeah, I think on the positive side, um, the Biden administration has 
elevated the issue of human rights, of press freedom in the U.S.-Russian relationship. Uh, we've benefited from the statements of support, the efforts of Secretary Blinken, Jake Sullivan, and others to raise with their Russian counterparts our particular challenges, and not just you know our situation, which they have raised, but then also the plight of other news outlets like Medusa, which are being pressured in this way. And so you have seen a renewed focus on human rights, press freedom in that dialogue. Now, the problem is the Russians, the Russian side has refused to engage. And if anything, has intensified its attacks on us, on human rights organizations, on civil society. Just almost every day, there are new developments in the run-up to the summit. And so um, I think it's going to raise questions about how far is the Biden administration willing to go uh, in uh, responding if there's not uh, a way to engage on these issues constructively with the Russian side. Um, And that's been the challenge that multiple administrations have faced. Uh, The Bush administration that I worked in, uh, the Obama administration, the Trump administration uh, went through this as well. I mean, we've had president after president who have felt that they needed to find a way to work uh, most recently with Vladimir Putin uh, with other Russian leaders before, but have struggled then to turn that into any kind of constructive progress, um, or at least constructive progress that doesn't also then result in Vladimir Putin taking advantage and lashing out. Um, I think that's, for me, looking back at the last several decades, the lesson that we should have learned repeatedly by this point We cannot just neglect the internal situation in Russia and assume that whatever Vladimir Putin is doing to the opposition at home is somehow not going to end up impacting us. And we've seen that the propaganda, uh, the information warfare uh, starts being applied to Russia's neighbors, uh, to countries like Ukraine. Uh, it eventually then makes its way west to Western Europe, uh, democracies uh, in Europe, and even now into the U.S. Um, and so I think uh, too, our, far too often our policy towards Russia has been short-sighted. And I think at this point we should have learned those lessons. But we're now back at a situation where we have a new administration just trying to figure out what those rules of the road are. Um, I worry as well, I just flag less that uh, I think a broader problem in Washington right now, not just one that the, the, the trap the administration may fall into, is while I'm strongly supportive of more focus on China, and at RFERL we're paying increased attention to China, given that China is a growing actor across our coverage area, and we're doing more reporting on China, making sure we're hiring journalists who have China expertise to serve our local audiences effectively on that story, there is a very real danger that we could lull ourselves into a false sense of security that, well, the real threat is China, that we need to focus almost entirely on China, and so what if the Russians lash out occasionally, so what if they lock up more opposition figures, so what if they wipe out all independent media, ultimately they're a declining power with a, a, a small economy, you hear that narrative more and more. And again, it's not really just, it's not even something that you hear from the administration, but you hear it in Congress, you hear it in the think tank community. Um, I think that is incredibly dangerous uh, because we've seen time and time again, even with these just recent cyber attacks, that Vladimir Putin is not going to go quietly 
if you try to relegate him uh, to some sort of, uh, you know, backseat in, in a relationship, um, he's not going to let us ignore what Russia is capable of. And I will also say in the information space, I think the Russians, with their direct interference in democracy, with their propaganda outlets, have also uh, become a model of sorts for the Chinese. I think the Chinese have actually learned quite a bit from the Russian approach on these issues. The Chinese are developing their own methods in this space. Um, But I think there's also a danger there too, uh, if we do not respond to these Russian actions because we somehow think that the bigger threat uh, is China uh, that will both expose ourselves to more attacks across these various fronts from the Russians um, but we also uh, underestimate the ultimate impact that that negligence uh, might have on our ability to compete effectively with China. Jamie, we'll leave it there. That was fantastic. Thank you for being with us on NSI Live today. Great. Thanks, Les. Great to be with you. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.